please pronounce your name correctly for me. So my name is pronounced Vsevolod Kovalevsky. And for the shortened version is Seva. And you're a currently, I see you do many things. You're one of those like hyphenated people, much <laughs> like myself, that does many different things to sort of cobble together a living. So what is it you're doing maybe right now? And also for that matter, where are you right now? Because I know you go between Lithuania and Norway and possibly somewhere else. I don't know. So what are you doing these days and where are you residing? So I'm currently a resident in Trumso in Norway, above the Arctic Circle, where I work as full-time curator at Tromsø Art Association, which is also the Tromsø Center for Contemporary Arts. I also am a guest lecturer at the Tromsø Art Academy, and I also, on the side, run a artist-run space in the closet, where I am currently in. Oh, literally, you're recording this in the closet. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I always love to know about people is, of course, where how they got created. So were your parents creative? Did you have some schooling? So like, what brought you to even this industry? I was always creative, I guess. Yeah, that's a, a bit banal question. But since the youngest age, I was driven towards something colorful and paint a lot. So I was always doodling. And from there, uh, my parents, my mom was trained nurse, but she worked as choreographer and dancer. She used to dance a lot. She traveled most of Europe and Africa and Asian countries. Well, I was growing up with my grandparents and my father was a DJ when he was younger. And then he became a boring businessman. As many of us do, yes. And then I just, I was always fond of arts. I was always in the art community since I was a child. I used to say that the Center of Contemporary Arts in Vilnius was my kindergarten, since we would go there roughly five, seven times a week. So, so basically was there all the time and then when I started studying arts, which we can speak later on why I started studying arts. Yeah, I just started working there. Feel free to elaborate on why you studied art. I was never interested in studying arts. I was fascinated by the building that the Art Academy of Vilnius was in. I never even knew that it was an art academy. I was like, I just want to study. There is university. I want to be there. And so when the time came to choose the place, I was like, ah, oh, that's a Vilnius Art Academy. Universe is saying to me, like, I should study there. And of course, I didn't get in on my first try. So on my second try, I went to. So just to be clear, you, you chose your university because you thought the building was pretty. Yeah, I am obsessed with architecture. It's beautiful because it was in the, this old monastery. And then after a year after we started studying there, we were moved. Our whole department was moved to a new building. So it didn't work. So you didn't get to study in the building you really wanted to study in? Uh, some lectures were still in the old building. So I was super happy. And our canteen was in an old building. 
So first of all, you're the first person I believe I've ever spoken to literally in my whole life that lives above the Arctic Circle. What's life like up there? I was sitting outside in the sun today having coffee and beer while chatting with all of my colleagues from all over the world today, <laughs> preparing the graduation show for the master's and the bachelor's degree students. It's nice in here. People have this tendency to think that it's very cold. It's not. The average temperature in winter is minus 12. Whereas in Oslo and back in Vilnius, the average temperature in winter when I was a child was minus 25. That's weird. Why? We live next to the Gulf Stream. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's really warm. And also there is this mythos behind the like winters are being so long and so dark. It's actually the summers are for me, for example, are terrible because it's light all the time and it's impossible like to to get away from it from it it's always light in here well i mean the blackout cloth you know they can do it but then it, it, it your chemical balance changes and it it affects a lot of people in that case it's like it's super nice but also it's extremely difficult for a lot of people to experience the white summers sure yeah seasonal affective disorders in reverse yeah too much sunlight too much sunlight. also ozone layer is way thinner here so it's a bigger chance of getting cancer oh that's good to know okay but occasional swim in the ocean is nice lovely now you said you were the curator of the i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation but it's trump so kunstforening kunstforening yeah Ugh, it's so okay i'm i'm butchering norwegian language too so that's fine i've never heard of okay i, I know a kunstall and of course galleries and museums i know those words but what's a kunstforening so kunstforening actually comes as two words combined into one Kunst is art, and forening is association. So there are many different forenings in Norway. So we are basically each majority of bigger towns and cities in Norway have their own art associations that get artists together. But Tromsø Kunstforening is operating on slightly different thing, and we are now in a transition to becoming a Kunstnerskhus, which is an artist house. So then what is your role in as a, you said, senior curator? Well, technically a curator, because we have only two people employed. <laughs> I was going to say, how large is it that you have to differentiate senior curator? <laughs> so curator. Yeah, I'm a curator. And then we have a director who is also artistic director. All right. So what is it that you, what's your programming then? So you're an association and you curate. So then I assume there's some exhibition programming and some other stuff. So what is it that you all actually produce, accomplish, whatever, create? So this is where I'm going back to what I said before that we don't operate as a typical Kunstverening. We operate more like a Kunsthal. We put our effort in 
pr exhibition production. And we produce, we concentrate on national and international levels. We have one exhibition, which we called Festival Utstilling, which is our festival exhibition that happens at the same time when the Tromsø International Film Festival happens. And we usually select artists that are in either extremely well-established or local. So we had last artist that I worked with for the Festival Utstilling was Anouk de Clark, a Belgium artist that I had a privilege to work with. And before that, it was New Mineral Collective. It's a duo of Canadian and Lithuanian artists, Tania Bassi and Emilia Skornulita. Last year, I believe they were in Toronto Biennial for the first time when it happened. My problem is that the art world has become so big it's so massive like it used to be you knew people in your city and maybe in your region and that was enough like you didn't and you were aware of like the big master ones but that but you you would never meet them so now these days i feel like there's this incredible sense that we should know everybody and that, or at least be following them on some social media or something like there's this almost need to be connected in a much more expansive and international way than ever was in the past i, I understand where you're coming from and also in my personal life i came to know a lot of artists nationally and internationally without even trying. It came through my job and it came from me studying. And then I was like, oh, I really like this artist. I will contact him because I really want to ask him questions. So I would just go for it. And then they either reply or not reply. And I was like, and if they don't reply for like a month or two, I was just like, asked my curator's friends, like, does anyone know that? And a lot of my friends that I know are basically the same. They, we would just be on Facebook, like, hey, can somebody give help me in touch to with this one or that one? And then we're just like, yeah, get to know each other. I'm totally of a different generation. I, I don't do that at all. But you're much younger than me. So there you go. One thing I absolutely love to hear about from curators in particular is a, so like we just talked a little bit about how you can find some people, but basically like these days, let's say maybe pre COVID, maybe now, how did, how is it you find new artists? Oh, just go to the exhibitions. But there, right now there aren't exhibitions, but okay. But I mean, but, well, but, but like if there's some amazing exhibition of a great artist in New York or LA or Paris or someplace like this, like you can't get to all of them. You can't get to all of them, but this is where the internet comes. And if I see something like I will be interested in a theme or something like that, I will research artists working around that theme. And that will start by just typing in Google. And then it's like, oh, okay, I see. And then like maybe a gallery will represent some more artists working in that field. And then I will be looking at the other things. And then I was like, oh, there is exhibition in New York. And then I'll be, okay, let's see who could write about that exhibition. So probably like art newspaper or New Yorker will write a review about the show. Then I was like, okay, 
I'm interested. Let's see where it goes. And then we will spend some time, like a year or two, building up our knowledge about the artist. And then I was like, okay, we want him in. Let's do it. Let's work with the person. And that's something I've often wondered about with curators as well. Like a lot of people think, a lot of artists think that like a curator is just going to come from on hive, do a studio visit and give them a show and it's done. But really it, it's, it's about building a relationship. So like that first studio visit is literally like a first date. And then you just have to keep dating basically to try and make it so that you, both of you feel comfortable then saying, okay, let's do something together publicly. Well, I'll tell you a secret. I'm not actually a curator. I'm an artist by training. I haven't never finished uh, art history or curatorial studies. Well, then good for you for getting a job as a curator. Majority of curators before a curatorship became a profession were artists. And in Norway, I think if I'm remember it correctly because we had this conversation with some of my colleagues before majority of curators in Norway were trained as artists and only around 2000s late to oh, early 2000s there were actually people that started to be called as a curator as a profession I think it's the independent curator okay yeah I totally agree with that because I, I remember being in school in the 90s and there was uh there, there was there was always the curatorial profession but it was sort of working towards being a head curator at a museum or an institution but that but that shift to having independent curators it, i feel like has only been in the last 20 years or so yeah okay agreed i like it <laughs> all right as a curator in your role, but also as an artist in your role, something that I have a fascination with, mostly because I have such a disdain for it, is artist statements. What role do they play as a curator, but also since you're an artist, what role do they play as an artist? As an artist, I made fun of artist statements. I had a piece that was called Artist Statement on the Wall, who's the fairest of them all. I found a generator online of artist statements and I printed out around 5,000 statements, good statements about nothing. And then that was a statement piece in itself that like that artist statement on the wall, who is the fairest on the wall. And now like I've been working with universities for maybe now six years in total as a lecturer. I understand the significance of the statement, but what is statement in itself? It's not about like for each work, it can be different. But if you manage to, with the, your own words, to describe in three sentences what are the core ideas that you're interested in, that is a statement in itself. Agreed. But I guess, okay, so let me spin it a little bit. So from your side as being a curator, what's the role of a statement? It showcases what you are as a human being. What are your interests? What do you stand by for? And why do you do what you're doing in the artistic practice? 
Yeah, I was going to say, because I'm not going to put like, I love baking and woodworking and all this because it has, you know, hobbies have nothing to do with it. So yeah. it's still got to be relevant. Yeah. As long as it's like relevant, because for example, I sometimes put in like, I work with uh, digital media and the cooking on the side. Seriously, you would put cooking on the side? Because I do make performances where I cook for people. <laughs> okay. Fair. Fair enough. All right. I remember when I was studying in, in at Goldsmith University, there was this a discussion between my professor and one of my peers. It's like, when do you know that you're a filmmaker and you're an artist working with a moving image? It's a great question. And then the professor just asked, it depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking with the film people, I'm the filmmaker. If I'm talking with the people from the art world, I'm an artist that works with a moving image yeah but that's so i don't know it feels sketchy and almost inappropriate well why does art has to be appropriate it could be oh i'm all about inappropriate art don't kid yourself but but i mean it, it, it feels like okay within that it sort of feels like there's a, a game that's being played when they ask for artist statements. Like they want us to meet a certain goal or criteria that, but they don't tell us what the goal or criteria is. And so we're constantly trying to achieve a result, but we don't know what we're trying to achieve. But when it's right, it's beautiful. When it's wrong, you don't get your residency or grant or whatever it is you want. And you don't know what you did wrong. And for that matter, when you get it right, they also don't tell you what you did that made it right. I think like for for me, I feel it. Like as an artist, I feel it out. Because like when I, I see my work that I'm doing and when I'm writing about it, and then I this is the p moment of reflection. So when I see that, oh yeah, this actually makes sense when I look at it, is it like it's, there is no bullshit in it. Then it's like, yeah, sure. When it comes from a curator's point of view, I, I receive a lot of applications to look through. And sometimes like, so what is exactly that you want to do? That's my first question. Like, because if it's a bad application, there then you're like, what is it's not about the artist statement, more about like, why are you doing this? Like, do you understand even why you are doing this? That's the question. Is it necessary for us to be that cognizant in the process of creation of why we're doing something? Because I know a lot of artists that will say, I don't know why I did this, but this is what I did. I think we should, and that's probably going to be controversial, but I think it should be because otherwise, yeah, there are moments where I don't know what I'm doing. And then I was like, okay, I will not pull that up. I will invite people to come and see it so we can have a discussion about what I'm thinking around that piece or that piece. And then there will be like, okay, so there might be that you're actually referring to this. And I was like, yeah, maybe. And then it like builds up that kind of reflection happens that helps a lot with understanding what you're actually doing we don't need to know what we are doing in the beginning but in the end when we present it to the public it's i think it's the responsibility of the artist to 
know what they're showing off. It's a fair assessment. I mean, I I find that it usually takes me about three to five years after I've completed a series. So that's not even starting the series, but done with the work that suddenly I can reflect back and put it into a better context of what was going on in the world, what was going on in my personal life, what was going on in my whatever studio space. And then I can go and I can put the pieces together and be like, oh, okay, that work was actually about all this XYZ that I had no idea that that's what it was about at the time of making it. Yeah, I think that's the the most beautiful way of creating work and working like with artists when you're like you're both trying to understand what the work is about. So as long as like someone makes a new piece and they don't know about it, but they really want to show it off, of course it might not work. It's like either it has to look amazing and you're like, oh, yes, I don't know what it's about. Let's just do it. Or you actually have to like, okay, let's not have this. But this is where the, uh, the amazing possibilities of like artist run spaces of the create your own exhibitions. Like when I was younger and st I still am young artist in my beginning of my career. So it's more or less like I do artworks in public spaces so that I can see the how people that has nothing to do with art world reacts to it. And then I also have people that are professionals from the art field that look into the exhibition. And then we have discussions. What worked? What didn't work? Why is there? It is like this. Like, what am I trying to convey? And so in that sense, I told before, like, there is a moment of reflection and also a possibility of mistake. Whereas the, when you have an exhibition in an institution, if you make a mistake and if it's not planned, well. Could ruin your reputation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You brought up beauty. This is a thing that I'm fascinated with because in America where I was taught and grew up, it was very much about, well, I shouldn't even say, okay my education was very much and about make something beautiful aesthetically in order to engage people so that then they you can make them think about something more so the the idea that something sh first should be somehow engage visually engaging aesthetically pleasing something like this then i came to europe and i've also been in the middle east and but in Europe, there's not as much of an emphasis on the aesthetic beauty. And it's much, it seems like, and I don't know if it's a time period or a location. So is it like of the now that con concept seems to be more important than aesthetic beauty? I think they're always been intertwined in Europe. What I think is different from the American side is that in Europe, we were reflecting what it is body like i mean being the whole half of europe was leveled up after world war one and world war two we didn't have time to think about just beauty <laughs> we needed to reflect i came from the country that was occupied for 50 years so we think there is a need for beauty but the beauty is different. This is, for example, like in queer theory, we have the objective art, 
which talks about the body transformations and it's like what the body is. You have the beautiful Orlan that does her first body modification with a live broadcast via satellite. I think it was to New York Gallery from France somewhere in the early, in late 90s or it was like late 80s. It's, it's beauty in the sense that the idea that gives people meaning and opens up the dialogue, I think that's the beauty in Europe when we come to artistic practices. And of course, like I've, in the past 10 years, I've seen sleek exhibitions. I myself was accused of making very sleek exhibitions. And I'm saying, yes, I like to make sleek shows. Like for me, that's the beauty, but I do, my whole shtick is about the, having this beautiful, beautiful objects that are talking about death and grotesque abusement of the freedom. Because we live in a society that is driven by objectified beauty. We need to be beautiful everywhere. And then it's like, no, it's not. We need to be ourselves. Okay, I'll be blunt about it. Since I've moved to Europe and I've traveled through a couple different countries, I've seen more what I would personally define as just ugly, unattractive things that are called art that like literally, okay, I'll give you a perfect example. Went to a space. It was an artist run space, I think, but it was sponsored by a municipality and literally somebody had just dragged a dumpster from the street and put it in the art gallery and taken everything from inside the dumpster and dumped it on the floor. And that's it. There, That was their art. I don't get it. I don't know if I'm just old or out of touch, but like if it had a great concept, so we get going back to like artist statements, like if it had a great concept, I would have been like, Okay, it's a it's addressing this. It didn't. It had a, a just as bad, poorly written construct of it and context for it. And I feel like I see a lot of what I'd almost consider like sketches, like they're they're tests, they're ideas, they're not fulfilled ideas, both craftsmanship wise as well as concept wise, already in public. Like I feel like they should have maybe waited a little bit to exhibit these things and sort of refined either their techniques or their concepts a bit more. And so I guess maybe is it that there's simply like more opportunities to more or less like we'll call it quote unquote, like test works out in sort of smaller spaces. And that's what I'm seeing. And so I sort of feel this way. Yeah. Okay. And right. a very simple question is like artist run spaces. Also, they are there for testing out in majority of that, they allow younger generation of artists. And when I say younger, it doesn't necessarily mean the age group. It means for how many years have you been in the art world in general? It's like you can be 50 and just starting. It also depends on the context where that kind of action has been done. Yeah, don't get me wrong. When I go to the museums and the Kunsthals even, beautiful works no no problems there it's the it's the galleries or the the artist run spaces and stuff that i've been seeing a lot of what i would consider sort of 
I'm going to say quote unquote, like unattractive work. Like it's not aesthetically compelling in some way. And I'm very surprised. Uh, but I think that your insight that the, that these are sort of designed as testing platforms or of either concepts or to, or, you know, craftsmanship techniques and stuff that actually makes more sense now. Also remember like young British artists, they started showing their artworks anywhere. They didn't have a aesthetically pleasing only later on. It became something that is from the perspective of capitalistic approach from the gallery with an interest in selling it. Then there's uh, suddenly like, here's have some more money. You will make more things and they're more beautiful. And then there will be collector that will be interested in that. But also it's like, imagine that piece with a trash being presented in the museum because there could be pieces like that presented in the museum. And it all depends like, what is that piece? Like, how does it holds up? If it has an emphasis on the current situation in the about the locality, for example, it can be shown in the museum if it makes sense. For example, if it's some museum in Chile Santiago where they have protests, and some of the artists would present this kind of piece or similar that is not aesthetically pleasing, it will have a powerful message to towards the intellectuals. Well, and that's what I was saying is that it, it wasn't just that the piece was aesthetically uninviting, but beyond that, the written text that was with it, the concept of it was also equally uninviting and un, uninteresting. It didn't have a good, powerful meaning like you're saying that it could have had. And, and that is, yeah, that is why it's not in the bigger institution it's in the artist-run space. But, but the fact that the, like, cause I, yeah, in the United States, we were often told basically like you, you, there's, you, there's no option for testing in public. It, like by the time you choose to put something in public, it's, that's your finished piece. And the artist-run spaces in the United States, or at least my experiences with them. So I shouldn't say everybody, but my experiences with them was, it was it was your best work that you put into an artist-run space with the hope that a curator or a collector or a gallerist would then see it and say, "Oh, hey, I think you're you've elevated work enough that you could step up to my world." So it was never meant as a testing, like when you put because I was still under the impression that when you put something in public, you put your absolute best out there and never show testing or trials or anything like that but it seems it's more common in europe yeah. uh, well i now remember like my exhibition at the national art gallery in vilnius it was a test piece <laughs> if you please it was extremely aesthetically pleasing it looked like a sh very very chic sci-fi testing area for the radio signals but, and it only consisted of one, two, three, four, four objects in a space of 80 square meters. And it's one of the biggest galleries in Vilnius, in Lithuania. 
some people were angry and asking like why is it there like how dare you people show it and the others were like that's an interesting piece and it, in that case yeah it's contextually it was like i was studying photography i was not interested in making pictures at all i just i despise taking pictures but what i loved about photography was light so i used light a lot as this structure for working with sculpture and extremely extremely abstract sculpture so in that sense it made made this testing something interesting for the institution in itself and for me as an artist that is coming out of nowhere and then like now i also can have the the most one of the most recent shows i just had was at the bank that is critiquing the whole capitalistic system. Okay, wait. So you had an exhibition at a bank. Yeah. Okay. That sounds quite cool, actually. I'd enjoy to do that. Some of the feedback from the people, is that all? And what I showed was this grotesque dead body. So in that case, and people loved it. It was all in pink. It was all in beautiful colors of the build. The color was called millennial pink. So there was this beautiful sculptures on the floor leaking this different kind of bodily fluids. So it, it, and they were almost scorched, like burn victims. And you can see the insides. But yeah, and those kind of objective things that you go and see inside the bank that an exhibition is talking about something like critique towards the capitalism and it's inside the bank it has this reflection on its own indeed yeah i mean a, a lot of artists have done you know uh reactionary work to things that occur in their life or in their time period so that that's very of the time these days with the increased in in the wealthy being wealthier and the poor being poorer so yeah, so in that sense, it's it coming back to the answering the question is like, the statement does work when the work is doing its job. It the message is behind it, then it can be anywhere, and it can be whatever, as long as it does the translates correctly. But I would take a wager that that work would have less impact. Let's say in an art gallery than it does in a bank because like in a bank it's a, it's literally turning capitalism on your face while you're sitting there dealing with money versus a sterile white cube gallery well it depends what kind of gallery i'm yeah i'm picturing a nice chelsea gallery in new york <laughs> like you know white maybe some steel steel girders that kind of stuff very very minimalist because what the like Kunstkamera is in general, it's a space that takes away the context. It beautifies things. But if you think about it, the contemporary art world and artists usually reflect on that a lot. It's like you cannot like it can be an empty space, but you still like you're one of the most dominant galleries, commercial galleries. So you can't take away that knowledge. 
So despite the space being empty, you can still have an impact on what it does. And then that same exhibition could be in, in the, the bank, but also it can have same amount of message being inside the white cube. It depends on what you will write and how you will contextualize the work. Context is everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, speaking of that, so you were talking earlier and still a little bit now about like who is impacted by it. So you talked about taking work out into the public so that sort of we'll call it like non-art people engaged with it versus sort of we'll call them art people just for ease of communication. The, the question of like who is art for is an ever flux conversation. So what's your position on like who is art meant for? I think art is for everyone. All right, that was easy. <laughs> but the what we do with art and how we con again, it's going back to like maybe the uh, to answer your question about previous question about the statement, how you contextualize your work. So, for example, like art is for everyone. It's there to enjoy, to be hated, to be discussed, to be disgusted by. Art is there to question things, comfortably, uncomfortably, with whatever we are trying to create visually. Like musicians think through making melodies, where visual artists are doing same thing to question the ones, not everyone, but majority of artists are working to question where they are, what they're doing, reflecting on the the ideologies, reflecting on the religion, re reflecting of the human condition in general. And if we're just artists that work with craftsmanship, how much of that can be? It's like, it can be a beautiful object, but it might not talk about anything. And then it's just a craft that is there. Oh yeah, I have this long-standing theory because I've had this debate with many people about the verbiage. Like, I wish that they could come up with some better terminology. I feel like too many people call themselves the wrong thing. So, like, this is here's mine. Okay, so it's just totally random. Oh, well, it's not random. I've been working on this for decades. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but this is my position. Crafts are things that are designed purely for function or aesthetics only. Art, the word art, is for things that have a concept and ha and but include craft. So they have to have good craftsmanship, good aesthetics, and a balance of strong of a concept. Fine art. I believe is where the concept drives the purpose of the creation and theoretically then still in has the other two criteria in it as well. That's my, that's the, my working vocabulary that I've come up with. And I think it's a, it's a very valid vocabulary. I think it's been used like this is it? I, from, from my perspective, it's been like that. But so many people don't say it right. Like, I can't tell you how many people I've met that say, oh, I'm an artist, no. but really they're craftsmen. 
or, oh, I'm a fine artist, but really they're artists or vice versa, where they say, oh, I'm a craftsman, but really they've elevated their craft to the level of fine art. So I feel like the, it, it's just not used well. And then of course there's social media. That's a whole different issue where people are saying they're curators, they're saying they're fine artists when they are none of these things. No, and I completely agree with that. For example, it also comes to the gallery things, how they call themselves. For example, in my in the town that I live now, we have one, two, two galleries that sell. <laughs> I love that you you had to stop and go like one, two, yeah. Two. No, I was like, are they really two galleries, and what kind of type they are? Because there we have we did have roughly four artist run spaces. Now we have only, well, now it, it went to two and now it's back to almost four. So it's three. And now we have three museums and one center for contemporary arts. So in that sense, in the galleries that I go in, that people are going and enjoying, they see the paintings by the craftsman person. It's a very boring landscape picture that has nothing to do with questioning anything. It's there to make a function. It, it's to beautify the apartment. Decoration. Yes. Yeah, it is decoration. And it's like, and for a lot of people, that is, even for the art, they can be called artists, but it's a not fine artist. There's this, yeah, like you said, there is this difference. And a lot of people just don't know about it. They don't understand those things. But that's my point is yeah. like, there's not a common vocabulary that everybody agrees on. And unfortunately, a lot of times people are using the vocabulary wrong. Like I've seen many a people that smear paint on a canvas and call themselves fine artists. And you say, hey, why? what's the concept behind it? And they'll go, I think it's pretty. Like, no, no. <laughs> you're not you're not a fine artist it's same what i used to say to one of some of my students i was like what do you want to do and i was like i want to make an art about me skating and i was like uh why am i supposed to be interested in that and wait, and she I'm said sorry. wait wait say it again art about what about him skating and then having an injury and i was like why am i supposed to be interested in that and then we had a discussion, and in the discussion I told him, I was like, well, you know, if you can add layers of, like, social constructs, why you, what is to be a skateboarder, what it means to be injured, what that injury does to you as an individual in the contemporary world, then you can do that piece. But if it's just about you skating, I don't give a crap nobody will well and that goes back to like the whole artist statement yeah. but it's not even like artist statement it's also you know you're a photographer i'm a photographer so we got that so like when you're making a, a set of work or a series or a portfolio you edit images but like you put some images in you take some images out because they're not creating a cohesive story that while it may be very personal to you is almost sometimes too personal and too subjective and not objective enough. And so a lot of times the creation of art breaks down into this whole 
I want to share this thing with the world, but quite honestly, the way I'm sharing it or what I'm sharing exactly is not interesting to the rest of the world. So you have to find some way to engage the viewer without, but yet still stay true to your original intention. And that's a really difficult, like balancing act to do because you want to stay true to yourself, but you want to a little bit give some context or offer some thing to the viewer, the general viewer, the non-art viewer, so that they can engage in it, even if they don't have any information or knowledge about art and fine art. No, I completely agree. And this is comes back to the contextualization. And but giving context is really hard. Like like I said with my own work, I find it takes me three to five years of time and distance to be able to figure out that context. But in the art world, we're expected to be able to contextualize when we're done with a set of work, we put it up for exhibition. And when we put it out for exhibition, we should already have that context. And I find that very difficult to be ready with that. It it depends. Like art professionals, like curators that work in the institutions, they do not expect us to be like that. Great. Okay, good. They expect us to know what we are doing. Because in the end, the it depends on your on one's working methodology. You can create one piece, and then in a couple of years, you will think about it, and it's like it's not about that. But as long as a good curator sees the work that you're working in, as like and he like you tell him something, and he will believe in you as long as you believe in what you're doing, and that belief system is based on contextualization that is relevant to where we are in time and space, then you will be successful. Oh, don't say that because that's not true. Because well, because success in my mind includes monetary gain. And that is, I never told that it will be successful in the commercial gallery. Well, that's an interesting question in and of itself is like the definition of success in the arts industry. But mind you, keeping in mind, I come from America, which is very capitalistic. So yeah. the, our idea of success is financial stability. Whereas in Europe, I find that the definition of success is more of like getting the certain awards, grants, residencies, whatever kind of like uh, accolades of some things and sort of building out a a cv that has really great things that make it so you're respected is sort of a, almost the sign of success but it it's how our two different countries like european union and usa we'll call that a country yeah how these two has a very different history of how we grew up america's young it's one of the youngest nations in the world and it has extreme power like for me i'm being i'm 33 i still think of america as a 10 year old with a bunch of money because <laughs> it's all based on capital it's a country of opportunities this is how it's been driven it's been like in the whole history why people went to america for freedom and to make a new life and the new life started with this occupation of the land and then mining it for gold for 
oil for gases. And it's like the whole history is monetized in a sense. Whereas in Europe, it's completely different approach to how we understand. In Europe, it's always about knowledge. It's about how, like in Lithuania recently, they had this research based on when artists are the happiest. One of the significant answers was the feedback from peers and professionals, because that is a recognition of your craftsmanship. Like we can be fine artists, but we still, it's our craft. We still make something. It's all about different kind of recognition. And of course, then money comes and the grants comes. It's like the, the education in most countries in Europe is for free. Yeah, I know. I hate you for that. Don't hate, participate. It's too late. I already have my master's. So yeah. I have three. I should go. But well, but I, I, I'm not a citizen. I'm still a U.S. citizen. So I don't get the free education yet. I think in Norway, you actually can have a free education. God, I got to move to Norway. I swear. Everything I keep hearing about, it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? You will fund your every, all the arts. You oh, will get no, free no, education. No, no, no. That's a myth. Not everyone gets funded. Okay. Well, school me on that. Tell me how, what, what, what I mean, well, give me some context. So like you're a part of an, an association which does get some support from the city and the government and all that. What about artists? Do, do they get support? Not everyone. Well, of course you have to be decent quality. No, there are, there are very, it's, I mean. <laughs> oh no, there's some shitty artists that get funded. <laughs> Yes, and that's the one word, yes, and people know that. But not everyone gets funded out of, like, for example, during Corona situation, only 30% got funded. It's never enough money. It's a mythos that there is a lot of money. Okay, but let me give you a little context for that, since that seems to be our theme for the podcast, context. In the United States, I was living in a small town in South North Carolina, and the amount of funding, quote unquote funding, that was available for artists was $500 a year, but only for like purchasing an object. So you couldn't like pay your rent or your studio thing like you had to like buy canvases or buy a camera or whatever like and that's it 500 that's if you received it and they only and they only gave out like 10 of these a year so 10 people get 500 dollars. so in context of that norway is spectacular so 30 percent of artists that's amazing even lithuania in that context is spectacular yes that's what i'm trying to tell you like, you really have it really good. But also, if we look into Asian countries, it's also, in some of them, the funding system is amazing. We can compare, but we also have to realize we live in, in a very different systems. Even healthcare in Europe, in most countries, is free. In America, you have to pay a lot if you are not insured, whereas in most European countries, you just don't worry about that. Yeah, but I've had some very bad experiences with European hospitals. We're I don't not want to get perfect. Into it. Oh no, these people were far from perfect. They were horrible. 
they, they, I got this scratch on my leg. It got infected. They made me go back to the hospital 12 times to get antibiotics injected into my butt every day for 12 days. And then when they were done, they said, oh, and then here's a Zithromac pack to just finish out the regime. I'm like, why the fuck didn't you give me that in the first place and not waste 12 days of my life coming back and forth to this hospital? Maybe they just liked you. <laughs> oh, it was so annoying. So annoying. Like, the, If they hadn't given the, the Z-Pack at the end, it would have been like, okay, this is the way they do it. I would have accepted that. But then they gave me the Zithromax. And I'm like, why didn't you just fucking give me that in the first place? Anyways. <laughs> <clears throat> my my problems <laughs> so back to the funding thing like i am utterly fascinated by it because I, from my outsider perspective scandinavian region so norway iceland sweden all those regions up there finland i don't want to leave somebody out uh, it's amazing the, okay the northern baltics okay i'll give it all so it's amazing with supporting the arts in comparison to a lot of the world it is. I mean, in no way we can say that it's not. But when you live in here, when you live surrounded by it, you will still see people complain. There's always complainers yeah. and people that are spoiled by it. But, okay, so you say 30% of the people get funded. When you say funded, what does that mean? Like they're given the like artist salaries like in Iceland or something? Like what do they get? So there are different kind of grants that you can apply to. There is one that is called working grant. It's from one year to three years if you're a new artist. So basically you get a grant for a year or two or three years that is equal to, what is it in euros? Roughly 20,000 euros a year divided into 12 months. So a salary. It's basically a salary, but if you get that, you're in if you have like hundred percent position somewhere, you have to cut it to a fifty percent position. I understand. So that you're not like, oh, I'm getting a salary and plus I'm getting that. That won't work for them. It's either I'll take you take it. I'll yeah, take it. Yeah, that I mean, and that is a perfect example. Like, but not everyone is like I know people that apply every every time, and it's like three times a, a year, and they never got it. And they're like, "Why?" And I'm like, "Well, there is something that you're not doing right, and there is no answer to it. Even I don't get every time." Well, that goes back to my thing about artist statements, which is that like we write these things, we we put in these grant proposals, these whatevers, and and if we get it, we don't know what we did right to get it, but if we don't get it, we, nobody tells us what we did but wrong. But that's not an artist statement; that's a project description. Okay, yeah. Well, see, okay, project description. That's a whole different ball of wax because. I come from a background where you produce some art, you put it out, you sell it, you take the money, and then you reinvest it and make more work. Project statement ideas is more commissioned artwork or 
or European, basically, sort of grant residency things where you propose something saying like, based on my existing portfolio and the quality of my work, I want to produce this thing that I haven't made yet. Will you support it slash fund it, whatever? I've never even written anything like that. I don't even know how, where to start with that kind of an idea. So majority of the this kind of applications, you have to have your artist statement a short 150 words. Hate them, go on, yeah. Just saying what you're doing as an artist. And then you have a huge paragraph, up to 2,000 words sometimes, to describe what exactly are you proposing to make. And then you there, you're allowed to say, I'm gonna be exploring this and this, and I'm interested in the materiality of this kind and that kind, and I'm doing, I will be, in phase one, I'm doing this, 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 and this. In phase two, I'm doing this, 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 and this. And then there is also another list of five questions saying like, why is it important? Who are your audiences? <sighs> where will it be possible to see the shows? Like, and then there, you just, you. this is where you have to be manager of yourself. You have to have the communication where artists run spaces, institutions, that might give you a letter of intent. It doesn't mean that they will work with you. It means that they're interested in showing their support for your project to be funded. And then if you develop that project, because in that application, you don't say like, you don't know what the project eventually gonna look like. Maybe you will run out of money before you even finish it up. I have been out of money before I finish up my projects. And then I was like, okay, let's see, what am I doing? And then you have to write down the report. We haven't done it because there was a struggle. So I had to invest my own money to finish it off. And then, yeah, there is the final project. But this is the beauty of all of this. Like sometimes they, if they don't trust you, if they see that you have to do a very thorough documentation of your process. And if you don't do that, they will ask for all of their receipts. And then you will have to give money back. Yeah, we don't want to deal with that. Yeah. It is all about the bookkeeping. It's all about being very straightforward with what you need, why you need it. And the statement is like, statement is very narrow thing in the application period. Okay, but when writing these kinds of proposals, because I mean, these kinds of things come up with grants, they come up with residencies. Yeah. I think those are the only ones I've run into like that. I never know what I'm going to do before I do it. Like basically, I will make something based around the, the general oeuvre of work that I make based on my existing portfolio based on how much money and space I have. Cause like basically like right now I have what I would consider a reasonably small studio. So I work reasonably small. If I had a big studio and I had the budget to buy a lot of resources, I will work big. So the nature of like them saying in advance, not knowing how much space you'll have, not knowing how much money you'll have, not even knowing how much necessarily time you will have propose an idea. 
I find that very difficult to do because I've never had to do that. But I thought, but it, what it sounds like to me is that that's a core principle of the European education that they teach you to be able to write these things in advance. Oh, they don't teach you at all how to write things. You just do it by failing all the time. That's the biggest lesson I learned from all of the three countries that I've been studying in is like learn by failure. It also depends where do you apply, what kind of residency. Like the the biggest thing is to research the residency that you are applying to. Go through the list of what kind of artist has been there before you. What are the themes that the residency is interested in? Who are running this space? So basically that kind of knowledge will lead you on. It's like maybe you want to like you're fascinated with a place where it is, but it has nothing to offer you. It doesn't have any kind of like facilities to make your art. In that case, like, why would you even apply there? Well, I had a previous guest that gave this amazing advice, which was basically when you write an application specifically for a residency or a grant, it's if you need to be able to answer why me and why now. And so if you can write something that explains why it is important for me to be at that residency now, then that's a really strong application. I think I know who you talked about this, but I don't agree. Amanda Marchand is the person that said it. I, I don't know. It's It also feels it's a very much application to the kind of residency where it's like, it's basically saying like, I have to be there because I'm this cool. It does feel like a bit of like an in crowd, out crowd thing because I've applied for a few residencies. I've never received any of them. And I always feel like the the, the last kid picked a, a, for sport, you know, the yeah, out but, crowd. But be sure you're not the last kid standing. There are a lot of last kids standing out there without getting in. So you're not alone, which makes oh, great. you which is perfectly fine. It's like, but the thing is, yeah, they will look who you are and what you're doing. For them, it's as important to who they are getting in because they are funded by government as much as it's important for you to go to that residency because they're getting funds and because of the people that were there before. It's This is where that American model of the capita you can say, like, is important. But it's leveling it's each other out. I mean, sometimes you're lucky and maybe someone is a genius in writing and it's like, oh, yeah, I will go there and I will get in. But most of the times, no, it, it takes quite a lot of time to get in. Sometimes you just meet at the party with someone drinking and it's like, oh, you should we have a good chat and then it's like, oh, you should come to that residency. Yeah, I know. It, it, part of it is politics and part of it is skill. But uh, sadly for me, the thing that is the worst is that merit has the least impact. So, yeah. But in any case, like, my advice is never give up. <laughs> and yeah, never be bitter. No one should be bitter about anything. It's like you're never alone in the field by being rejected. Am, am I coming off as bitter? No, 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 not you. Like oh, okay. in, in general, I because I also tell my students that there's like 
you don't have to be bitter just because someone said no to you. It's like happens. Holy shit. If I was bitter for every no I had in my career, then I would just be a ball of bitterness. We know that there are people like that. And that's, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we all hate them. <laughs> Not hate them. I just feel sorry for them that they choose to be bitter instead of actually go. Well, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy also, because like if you become bitter, then people don't want to work with you. And so then you become even more bitter. Yeah. And because nobody wants to work with you. Yeah. So being bitter is not a thing that will help your career in any way whatsoever. No, no. So yeah. Yeah. Contextualize, contextualize and contextualize. <laughs> Fair enough. That seems to be the theme of this episode, but I've got two questions. I always ask everybody at the end. So let me get to those, which is, could you give me three contemporary artists that you're looking at? I'm obsessed with Kara Walker. Sorry, and a little bit of why you're, you, you are looking at these people. So go on, Kara Walker. She works with themes that I'm extremely interested in. It's gender, it's, it's race issues, it's nationalism, it's history. And for me, that's to the core idea of, of how we understand each other. I'm extremely interested in that. Then who else am I interested? From the younger generation of artists, I'm interested in Lithuanian artist Anastasia Sosunova. She works with research into the communities and how communities are built up and religious just aspects and mythologies behind it and reflects on the contemporary world and mythos. And the third one would be... Hmm. It's always changing. This is just today who you're interested in? Myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> we all have to be our own cheerleader at some point. And what and then the last part is, is you've already given some advice, so I'm not going to ask for your advice. I'm going to ask what the best advice you have ever received was. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. Then we'll scratch that. How about some really some good advice for the next generation? You can make art and run artist spaces without any funding. But you can't pay your bills or your mortgage mm, or but, anything like that. Yeah, but I'm running artist-run space without funding, but it, it comes from my salary, which is not that big in Norway. It's an average one. So I cover everything from my own salary. Now you're talking about in the closet. Yeah. Okay. But it's not very large. It's a closet. Yeah, but I have two new exhibitions every month and the artists are not mostly are not Norwegian. They live all over the globe, so the postage is driving me nuts. It goes to hundreds of euros, but it's the idea like this is why I opened it up. I needed art closer to me and I wanted to talk about themes that not all of the institutions in town are talking about so I just created a space like I said and artists know that I was like I don't have funding I cannot pay is there any kind of other possibility for us to communicate and they say yes so do you find running your own a uh, space beneficial for my mental health and for the 
engaging with more people, showing them different kind of approaches, inspiring them that you don't need like 150,000 euros a year to run an artist-run space. You can have a full-time job and you can have a concept. Absolutely. I'm all for it. I, I've run numerous art spaces through my career, I, but in the end, they, they often don't last as long as we would like because at a certain point, either you burn out on doing free work or something happens to the, the property, like the landlord is suddenly like, oh, you've made this an attractive place. Now I can rent it for more. Well, I mean, my my rent increased See? five days ago, but I'm also I'm leaving to a new city. So the gallery is traveling with me because no matter where I go and it changes the shape all the time, but the concept it still is going to be in my closet. Lovely. Just keep on trying and one day everything will, not everyone will be millionaires and not everyone is meant to be one. And not everybody's going to make it into the art canon either. Yeah, it's like, and do do they need to be there? It would be a really big canon if everybody was in it. That would yeah. be ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, I remember when I was studying bachelors, and my some of my friends went to Japan and some to Los Angeles. They met people that just randomly said hello to say hello to me, and I was like. Uh, okay, the world is small. The world is small and the art world is even smaller. It's actually, it's not that big. No. We're only a couple hundred thousand. That is literally not that many people. Every time I've gone to a fair or a festival, I've run into somebody from my life. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I hope the interview and the podcast will be great. Who knows? <laughs> Holding fingers. All we do, we do our best and we hope people like it. That's a good saying. I will keep that and cherish it close to my heart. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>